Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello there and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, Charles Adler on why we don't trust politicians. Karen Chimmy from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection on what happened this week near Landmark, Manitoba. Textbert Al Castell from Alpha Technologies on automation, making you safer, and we're the Slurpee capital of the world again. We'll talk about it with Laura Creek Newman from the Wellness Institute. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Sixty-four percent of politicians can't be trusted. That's the finding of a new Angus Reid survey, and we're going to talk about it now with the host of Charles Adler tonight, heard weeknights here on CJOB at 9 o'clock, Mr. Charles Adler. Chuck, great to talk to you again. Only 64 (laughs) percent. Canadians are very generous people. See, and I I see that number, and I think that's a big number. You're right. It it probably should be bigger. But that shocks me (laughs) when two-thirds of people say that politicians can't be trusted. And let me give you some other findings. You probably know all these numbers already, but I'll I'll say them again for everybody else. 32% believe politicians are motivated by personal gain, not helping the community that they're representing. Um, people most dissatisfied with federal politicians, less with provincial, and civic politicians are the ones that people trust the most. But most uh, of the dissatisfaction, the the mistrust comes with federal politicians. 67% like candidates with outside work experience, so something other than politics. Go ahead, Chuck, weigh in. What do you think? Well, which one do you want me to weigh in on? I mean, the federal, uh, provincial, uh, city thing is is kind of simple. I think uh, the the federal ones are the you know that's the major leagues. Uh, they're the ones who get the most amount of coverage. So, if uh, just using as an example, uh, the current government, if uh, the party, the Liberal Party under Trudeau, is campaigning uh, to do uh, democratic reform, saying things like uh, this uh, first past the post system that we're doing, this is the very last time. It'll never happen again. And that gets uh, booted within the first year. Um, if they say they're going to shut the deficit uh, within a few years, and then, you know, the election is just around the corner, and they say, well, we're, we're going to have deficits for a number of years. Uh, you know, that, that, that's another one. Those are just two. There are many other contradictions. The point is that these kinds of stories get lots of focus, and so people hear promises being made, promises being broken. I mean, that's the kind of thing that shreds credibility. And uh, once you shred credibility, you violate trust. Which is too bad because there are some good politicians out there. And I want to ask you, uh, you know, what politicians you've met and talked to over the years that you liked and and trusted. Because uh, there are good and bad in everything, including politics. Unfortunately, I think in politics, even if you're good, you're painted with that bad brush, aren't you? Well, you know, it, it's you know, I'm a series of contradictions, no different than uh, you know the average person. I'm just an average person when it comes to liking certain people, but not necessarily even uh, trusting them 100 percent or voting for them. And my best example would be my favorite all-time politician is my friend Jack Layton. I was thinking I ne- of him. Yep, but I never voted for him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you trust him though? I, I trusted him on a personal level, on personal things that he and I were talking about, but I wouldn't have trusted him as a prime minister, which which I told him. And he, you know, he used to laugh about that. I mean, we, you know, we, we took it in stride. You know, we uh, understood that our, our, our political visions were different. But as a human being, 
Uh, I really, really liked uh, Jack Layton. Now, as far as a constituency person is concerned, this is what where this business comes in about local, local, local. I had no doubt that Jack Layton cared about his constituents, and he was going to do hard work for them. And I remember being in a situation in Toronto where I needed help just as a voter uh, for some issues that I was having with a certain federal department. And I went to uh, my conservative buddies. Uh, none of them, none, none of them were willing to help me. I ended up going to a liberal uh, friend of mine, and the liberal helped me just like that. Now, I remember him telling me that I, I don't expect you to ever vote for me, and I don't expect you to, to support my party, but I just uh, I, I hope you understand that as far as constituency work is concerned, it doesn't really matter what the party is. Uh, you know, some, some people are more into it than others, and he was one of those who was, who was really into it, and I just, I will always respect him for that, and there many people that you could, if you open up the phone lines, I'm sure people would call and, and say that, yeah, certain people who they didn't vote for were very, very good in their constituency doing those local constituency issues. Yeah, and, and I think, too, I will certainly vote for somebody that I don't really like, but I think they'll do a good job. There's that, too. Absolutely. If you if you feel someone will do the job, uh, you know, it shouldn't matter that they don't agree with you on every single issue. Not everyone will. And the thing is that most of these issues, and, and this is the, the God's honest truth, uh, you know, outside of the average constituency issue that you have to deal with, as far as the big policy issues are concerned, they have no choice. I mean, they, they claim to represent you. That's how the system is supposed to work. But really, they represent their party. So if uh, you're living in, uh, you know, Winnipeg uh, uh, Center, um, you your constituency, uh, the, the person who is your MP, may say that he's doing his, his most to represent you in Ottawa, and I'm not suggesting that he's not, but the fact is he's got to represent uh, the, the party line, regardless of what he personally feels. And I think maybe that's why uh, people trust civic politicians more, because they don't have to toe that party line or follow the leader, right? In my ideal world, everyone is an independent representing the constituency, not the party, but I'm told by people who uh, are much smarter than me that the, the country would fall apart, you'd have, you'd have chaos, that this is the most orderly way to go, and that the Canadians, you know, care about those, those, those three virtues, you know, peace, order, and good government, and I think order uh, is one of the most important ones to most of the people most of the time. They want things to be reliable, even if in this case, what we're talking about is sometimes reliably not telling the truth 100% of the time. Chuck, here's a good interesting uh, text message right now. I just got 204-780-6868. Pay the minimum wage and see how many politicians do it for the people. But yet we keep hearing we got to pay more to get good people to run for office. So which is it? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not going to mention the name of the politician, but it was a Winnipeg politician that uh, I ran into a number of years ago. And uh, she had uh, fallen out of favor with the party and uh, no longer, you know, was she doing any important work for the party, but she was still a member of parliament. And she was spending most of her time just going through uh, the available literature on where she could take trips on the taxpayer's dollar. And all of these trips supposedly, of course, uh, were about uh, helping the country and doing research, et cetera, et cetera. Trips to places like Hawaii and other exotic uh, places where they would have these seminars, these conventions, whatever it was. But the point is that it was just obvious that she was bored out of her mind. Uh, she had nothing to do and uh, she was not likely to be in, in power for, for much longer. She was likely either not to be the nominee or forced to retire, whatever it was. She was in her final uh, final couple of years. And so she was blowing a lot of money. 
Now, the, the idea that um, you have people who have access to that kind of trough um, is something that that bothers people. And you know, there's very little there's very little time spent on that, even in media. But whether you're a member of parliament or you're a senator, every year you have access to a lot of trips to do so-called research, which in my opinion is a waste of money. And it's the kind of thing that contributes to the survey where people say, hey, wait a minute, these guys are only in it for themselves. Right. And one more finding on the survey. I want you to weigh in on this. Conservatives, twice as likely as New Democrats, 40% to 21% to say politicians primarily run for personal gain. The Liberals even further back at 13%. So what's that all about? Conservatives are more suspicious of a politician running for personal gain instead of helping the community. I think in general, conservatives are the ones who are most suspicious of a big government. I think that the conservatives usually, uh, you know, favor uh, small business. Uh, conservatives do not favor uh, all of the social programs, or at least don't want to always be spending more money on social programs uh, because they realize if, uh, if people blow the budgets and, and that's happened in Manitoba, nobody needs uh, reminders, uh, then that, that, that creates difficulty right inside uh, those social programs. You know, last night, uh, Bob Irving, I don't know if you discussed, did you discuss Bob's emergency thing? No. Okay. So Bob tweeted about uh, being in the eMERGE at the Grace Hospital. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to have Bob on uh, tonight about that. And it, one of the tweets, and Bob is not uh, prone to hyperbole. You know, Bob's not Hungarian like I am. So, <laughs> you know, Bob says something, you, you can take it to the bank. Yeah. When I say something, you know, you got to put it through your filter. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll admit that to you because uh, <laughs> I've got my biases and, and everyone knows what they are. I put yeah. them right in the, in, in the window for you. But so, so Bob, who's a very, very straightforward person, yeah. uh, said in the tweet that he'd been at the uh, Grace for several hours and he thinks he may have a blood clot in his leg. And if they don't see him soon, he's going to leave the hospital. And he also said he told his wife that if he dies, she should sue. Now, that's not the kind of, you know, at first I thought somebody had hacked Bob Irving's account. And then I realized, no, no, this is Bob. I mean, Bob was was there. He was obviously frightened, as anybody would be, and he was frustrated. And there's no doubt that when the triage nurse saw him, she did her job, or he did his job as a a triage nurse, and, 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 you know, felt that those people who were in more dire straits uh, had to go before Bob. And that's kind of the system and how it works. And I think everybody in Winnipeg and everybody else in Manitoba knows that. There's nothing new here. But in this case, what, what feels new is that it's, it's everybody's friend, Bob Irving. Now, Bob, as it turns out, didn't have a blood clot. But the point is, he did go home. And there were many people on Twitter who said, don't leave the hospital. Because if you do have a blood clot, the last thing you want to do is, is you know, walk around on the thing. Yeah. And, uh, and Bob just got frustrated and went home. And the, the doctor called him uh, later today. And uh, fortunately, Bob's okay. Bob didn't have a blood clot. He had something else. I don't remember exactly what it's called. But it's not all that serious. And they'll, uh, they'll deal with him, thank goodness. But what if he did have a blood clot? Yeah. Now, it, it comes down to basically dollars and cents. There were two doctors on duty, and there were more than 25 people waiting, and so they waited and they waited and they waited. So where does this conversation go? Well, it goes to the number one issue in the country, and that's health care. Yeah. And as long as, as and people, once you have access to the people in our system, they're terrific. You know, you've dealt with them, Hal. Bob's dealt with them. Yeah. I've dealt with them. I say it all the time. The the, the, I say it all the time. The people are not the problem. The people yeah, in the system it, are not the This is about the, the system. This isn't about the folks. Right. Uh, who are uh, the front liners? Uh, there's, you know, there, there's there's no evidence that, that those two doctors at the Grace last night were out in the parking lot smoking a joint. They were working. 
okay? Yeah. And you, you get to people when you can get to them. But there aren't enough of them. And so when, 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 when people hear these surveys, as, you know, the ones we're talking about this morning, you know, one of the things that goes through, I think, everyone's mind is if people felt they were getting the service they feel they're paying their taxes for, and so, you know, the, the biggest chunk of the tax pie goes to health care, if we felt that if we went to Emerge and got treated within, like, one hour instead of four or five or six hours, then that would be a sign to us that we're getting value. So that, that's one of the reasons, you know, you hear politicians who are allocating all kinds of funds for all sorts of things. And you're always asking yourself, you know, why don't we have a, a, a bigger priority for our priority, which is health care? And, of course, the politicians always push back with, well, if you want to make sure that you only have to wait one hour in the emerge as opposed to three or four or five, you'll have to pay even more in taxes. So that there's, there's both sides of that. But I think that's one of the reasons why we have this skepticism. Uh, the most important thing to us is health care. It's a government system. And when it does come to the emergency, that aspect of it, uh, we feel like we have to wait. And of course, if you, if you need surgery, unless it's emergency surgery, there too. Uh, you can open up the lines or not open up the lines, but people will say they have to wait far too long to yeah. get what they need. Yeah. Very well said, Chuck. I got to leave it there. Thanks a lot for this, pal. You I bet. appreciate it. Imagine now speaking to a 16-year-old who's just gone through this traumatic experience. That's the tough part is getting the information. So we obviously want to take time, make sure she gets the assistance, uh, the help she needs because she's going through this terrible uh, situation. RCMP after that uh, attempted abduction the other day down by Landmark, Manitoba of a 16-year-old girl. I don't want to get into the specifics of that case, but it has uh, got people talking. And joining us now, the Director of Operations, MissingKids.ca at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, uh, Karen uh, Chimmy joins us on the phone. Hi, Karen. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. So just some basic questions now that I think a lot of people are asking after this uh, landmark incident. Does this sort of thing happen a lot? It doesn't. You know, it's it's such a terrible situation that's happened, and it's got to be incredibly traumatic for this young girl and, and her family. Um, and, you know, from here at the center, our hearts are with with that girl and, and, and her family just now. But it is an incredibly rare situation. Stranger abductions are very, very rare. I think the RCMP statistics for last year was about 30 stranger abductions across Canada out of 42,000 missing child cases. So so we're fortunate that it is very rare, but of course it is something that is most frightening um, for, for parents and for community members. And when it does happen, it really impacts everyone. And we need to talk about this, right? I mean, some people might say, "How you're you're talking about, as you just said, Karen, a rare occurrence. Why are you getting everybody worked up? Are we right to talk about this? We are. We do need to talk about it. Um, it's important in any, like any type of missing child situation, we, we want to always be educating and preparing kids for prevention reasons, right? So while it is a rare situation, we still want to, on a continual basis, be um, talking with kids and teaching them uh, strategies that contribute to prevention. And, and not all situations are preventable, um, as we know. And, and oftentimes, sometimes the stranger abductions are the most difficult to prevent. Um, but we still want to teach them strategies to potentially reduce the likeliness of this happening, right? Can you give us a few of those strategies? For sure. I mean, and it all depends on the age of the child, but starting from a young child, continuing right through to their teen, reinforcing the importance of of a buddy system and making sure your parents know where you're going. 
um, and when you're going to be home, having some kind of regular check-ins, um, things like, you know, if someone does approach you, um, is saying no, yelling, um, putting up some resistance, so teaching them some of those skills. And um, and those are really important assertiveness skills to teach kids right, right from the time they're young and give them opportunity to, to practice them on a regular basis um, versus waiting to an incident like this happens and doing a you know, a quick crash course. Um, it's something that they need to be doing pretty regularly is, is continuing to reinforce and practice those skills. And then what do you do if something like this happens? You say, no, I don't need a ride. The person grabs you, throws you into the vehicle, takes off. Uh, do you fight? What's the advice then? I mean, it's definitely really tricky, but um, a lot of what what we've learned from some looking at past situations is it is really important to put up that fight um, and and to make noise and make a scene if someone's trying to grab someone off the street. Um, and again, it, it's never the child's fault if it does happen. And, right. and it's never the child's fault if they're not able to react in a way that they may have practiced or been taught, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all have different responses and fright and flight and panic. And um, it's not the child's fault ultimately, but teaching them some of those skills um, may be beneficial, right? Yeah, it's important. Karen, I appreciate the conversation. I think a lot of people are having this conversation, and I wanted to get somebody like you with some answers that hopefully uh, are useful and, and help those people out there as they ask the questions. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks for having me. And joining me now, Texper Alan Castell from Alpha Technologies. Hello, Al. How are you, sir? Hello, Hal. Thank you. I never heard that one before. That's what? a good one. What? Texper. Texper. Well, that's what you are, man. I'm going to go get a shirt. Anytime I have questions, <laughs> anytime, and, and Al and I go way, way back to mine computers, the first computer I ever bought, I think I paid $43,000 for it. <laughs> I think I Al sold was, it to you. Al was the guy. You sold it to me. Yeah. Al was the guy. I used to do remotes every Saturday at mine, so that's how long I've known Al. That's 30 years, man. Pretty close, that's yeah. That's almost 30 years. Yep. Anyhow, you're great at everything. Whenever I have a question, I call up Al, I email Al, and Al's got the answers. We're going to talk about 3D printing in a moment because you're just showing me the latest stuff you're doing. And I knew a while ago you were into this, but this is crazy. Mm-hmm. But first of all, let's talk about automation and how you can make your home safer and also your business safer. And the timing on this is interesting because just yesterday, Red Bomb Fireworks was mm-hmm. busted into... They got some very good uh, shots of who did it, and that that was on social media. And so help us out here. Automation Mm -hmm. and alarms, how can we use this to make our homes and businesses safer? Because the technology is advancing so fast here. It is, and and we're seeing technologies merging, and that's really where we started to get involved, Hal, is is that you're seeing a home alarm, for example. You have an alarm at your house. Yeah. It lets you know if somebody's broken a window or broken in. Mm -hmm. And then you have cameras so that you could then kind of look and see who and what. Yeah. Well, now we're starting to look at merging those cameras and using them along with the alarm system. So I'll give you a really good example of a situation I had personally where my wife and I came out and saw something in our yard that wasn't ours on a Sunday morning at 10.30. And we're, did the kids leave that? And mm. So I go back into the camera system and I find out that at 5.24, exactly in the morning, yeah. somebody on his bike decided to ride into my yard, open my gate. And this is an enclosed yard. And right around looking for something. He had a bag on his back and this is what we had found in the yard and yeah. it contained old boots and a old yellow safety vest. So he, he went around and then he saw the cameras because he's, you know, I have cameras in the yard. He saw them and then he decided that it was time to get out of there yeah. and he dumped the bag and off he went. The problem I had is that there was somebody in my yard for a while where I didn't know. And while I knew the next day, 
maybe that isn't good enough to mm-hmm. respond. And I'm yeah. not saying to respond to get in a dangerous way. Call the police or do whatever. So by using this technology, I added two more cameras to the system, but not to the camera system, to the alarm system. These cameras now, I have the ability to draw virtual lines in my yard. So in my front yard with the front camera, I have a line that runs right along my gate, and then I have another one that's 20 feet deeper. At midnight, rules turn on in the alarm system. If somebody comes in my yard after that time and crosses that first line, what it does is it turns on my yard lights, turns them all on so he knows that something is going on. Mm -hmm. If he continues and hits the second line, it now beeps my phone and it turns my bedroom lights on in my home. Right. So if my bedroom lights go on at three o'clock in the morning. You know somebody's in your yard. I now can check my phone. I can check the cameras. I can phone the police or I can react accordingly. So that's using cameras, alarms, and now home automation. Exactly. So the automation part of it is by adding. Now, you don't just go and buy this and put it in your house. Here's a couple of pieces that are needed. For one, you need to have light switches that can be told to turn on or off by the alarm system. So there are standards there, Mm -hmm. and this is what we're doing. Well, now we get into the business side as well. So as you said with Red Bomb, the opportunity to do that with your business, but on top of that, you have motion sensors that pick up when your alarm is activated so that if somebody comes in, it now sends an alarm signal. Well, why don't we leave those on in the daytime so that we can kind of watch how many people go by that sensor in the day and give those analytics to the business owner. Hmm. Now he knows, oh, Wednesday, I'm busy, and I'm busy between 10 and 11. Look at this traffic. So we actually can provide the graphs, the automation. If your staff was supposed to lock by a certain time and they didn't, it will let you, the owner, know so you can lock your business remotely. Temperature, thermostats, lights, cameras, all of this now talking to itself and running on a certain type of logic that you, the business owner, decide yeah. what you want to know. Yeah. This uh, is reality. It, right. And and as I said, technology is advancing so fast that you may not even be able to imagine what you can do, and yet it's there. Mm-hmm. We, we exactly. can do it. Like I, for example, at my alarm at home, I've got a sump pump, right? I'm out mm-hmm. just south of Winnipeg, so I've got a sump pump. Now, I've got a sensor in that sump pump, right? Exactly. So if my sump pump, for whatever reason, doesn't work and it's rained a bit or whatever, and it gets to a certain level... That sets off my alarm. I get notified on my phone. So, it, you know, I mean, that's You're pretty... at it before it's flooded right. your basement. I know mm-hmm. what's going on before mm-hmm. I go, I got a foot of water in my basement. Well, and the automation, we actually were just in Emerson to what they're fondly calling a south port. So as we have center port here, there is some work going on there. So we were called in to meet at a milling company, a large Emerson milling, beautiful facility that they're building. And this is an interchange of, of rail and, and trucks. So what they had as a problem is we want our guys to be able to drive onto a way scale, have an optical character recognition, recognize their license plate, and understand that that license plate letters, not just take a picture, Hal, but actually know the letters, put that into a database, and then weigh them, and then let them go and dump their grain. And when they come back, they go through the same scale. It recognizes their plate again. It now weighs their unloaded weight and then gives those guys there the difference that was dropped off automatically. Hmm. No guy going out, nobody punching in numbers, nobody at a scale. Wow. Drive in, green light says you're ready, move ahead, and so on. So we're working at integrating a couple of different technologies, the information from the way scale, the information from the cameras, yeah. and looking towards doing some automation in that way. Too. Now let me ask you a question, though. When yeah. people hear that, they go, oh, we're losing jobs, automation is taking jobs, robots are taking all the jobs. Now I've heard some people say mm-hmm. that, but then I've heard other people, experts like you, that say, actually... Maybe it's changing the jobs, but it's not taking them away. In reality, it's adding jobs. And it's repurposing jobs because yeah. now we're using people where they should be used, which is using 
decision-making abilities that a machine once programmed, who wants to be that guy sitting in that booth at minus 40 in Manitoba right. that is logging all these things down? That guy has a much better and a much happier job or a role doing something else productive within that. It's not mm-hmm. replacing people, Hal. It's complementing it in any, yeah. in some places, adding people because productivity increases, business therefore increases, demand increases, so on and so forth. So yeah. successful companies that use this and repurpose their people, they are seeing growth, not loss. And I want to talk about uh, 3D printing, uh, so I don't want to make this a quick question and a quick answer. Hmm. Cost, right? I mean, technology mm-hmm. advances. Usually the cost is higher at the beginning of mm-hmm. that new technology, but mm-hmm. prices are coming down quickly on this stuff, aren't Absolutely they? Absolutely they are. And once you get the big majors that have been into the paper printing, like the Hewlett-Packards and the Canons of the world, you're going to see that drop even again. But it is reaching mainstay where it will be something, I say, in everybody's home within the next 10 years. Yeah, I was talking about automation. Okay. Yeah, the automation, like cameras and tying it oh, into yes. your phone and everything. The prices are coming, are, are absolutely more affordable than what you might a think, A third right? of maybe what yeah. they were two to three years ago right. on the cameras and much, much better resolution. Yeah. So you're not looking at the old, can I make out that license plate? You're right. able to zoom in and absolutely yeah. make out the details yeah. you want. Now to 3D printing, you brought in, uh, like, I guess they're little game pieces, eh? Yeah, yeah, and some resin-based. This is what you're doing now. Explain where 3D printing is at now. So we've all known about what's called FDM or the the type of printing that you see where it spits plastic out and it creates things out of plastic. Mm -hmm. So just recently, I brought in what's called a UV resin printer. So what this is, is it's something that uses a resin or a liquid in a vat, okay, and inside, and it hits it with UV light. We've now got the ability to control that. And as I was telling you, the human hair is roughly 0.1 of a a millimeter, okay, in, in size. So we're able to get down to over five times thinner than a human hair. Wow. That's the kind of detail. So for something small now, and jewelry industry has completely changed. They're not cutting the rings out of wax and then putting them in a mold. They're printing their rings because they have the detail now to be able to print out of what's called a castable resin. And they can now just, whatever design they can come up with in a computer, print it out, put it inside a mold, heat it out of the mold once it's done, and then pour your gold in and make your ring. So you're seeing a lot of things being done. Dentists, dentures, teeth, all of this all starting to be molded because we have the accuracy to now produce things in that resolution. That small. That small. That precise. Yeah. And, and at print- that decent expense. It, right. And and the printers themselves aren't even that expensive. No. You know, the ones now, the, the hobbyist-grade you know, printers, you're in the five to $700 range. And that's something where you're going to invest some time in learning it or have a friend that does. Yeah. The commercial product's still probably three to four times that amount because mm-hmm. it's just a lot easier for the people in those professions to use it. There's sure. not as much studying that you have to do. Yeah. yeah. But if you can get a printer at home for four or 500 bucks and do stuff like these, I know this is radio, you can't see it, but these cool game pieces, mm-hmm. that precise, that detailed, I mean, that's incredible. And, and it continues to advance. It, it will. And it will only get better as we figure out better ways to do things, just as we've seen with technology at all times. I think Moore's Law says twice as fast and half the price every yeah. 18 months. And yeah. that has continued for over 40 years. Yeah. Al, mm-hmm. nice to see you again. Thanks Thank a lot, you. pal. Appreciate it. Al Castell from Alpha Technologies joining us here. <music> joining us now here on Hal Anderson Afternoons, Laura Creek Newman. She is a nutritionist at the Wellness Institute here in Winnipeg. Hello, Laura. Hello. Hi, thanks a lot for doing this. So again, Winnipeg, Manitoba, the world slurpy capital. Should we be proud of this or embarrassed about it? (laughs) 
Well, you know, Winnipeg, we love to boast about whatever we can, right? <laughs> so there's always something. You know, Slurpees, they're, they're such a big part of Winnipeg culture here. So uh, to, to say that we can't be proud of it, that would, that would probably turn a lot of people off, right? But uh, it, it, it's something to, to think about, to consider. We can all enjoy a Slurpee. It just needs to be in moderation once in a while and not every day, right? Absolutely. Of course. You know, all these little extras and fun things like Slurpees, definitely, they're part of what makes summer really fun and memorable and that, right? Um, But like you said, just encouraging other things some of the time. So it's not our only drink over the summer, if you will. And we know that Slurpees are loaded with sugar, Laura. Um, You know, we know a lot of sugar is not good for us. Speak about that from the perspective uh, of a nutritionist much added sugar so that's the kind that's like table sugar what's in our sugary drinks we we know that when there's a lot of that in our diet our risk for certain chronic diseases things like diabetes and heart disease definitely does go up um, when we have a lot of that and sugary drinks are one of the biggest sources of that of that added sugar in our diet so we do want to be mindful of our of our drinking habits over the summer because those sugary drinks especially those cold icy ones can pack quite a lot of sugar we don't even really realize how much we're getting some amount of of added sugar can definitely work into a balanced diet along with our other nutritious meals and things like that but it's when we're having a lot of them and, and especially because they can come in really big quantities, like some of our Slurpees can, that's where that balance that we're looking for gets out of balance. Yeah, and if we like sweet drinks, what are some alternatives? Any ideas? You can look at some lower sugar alternatives, some that have less sugar added to them, like iced teas and drink mixes that just don't have as much. Some great alternatives are things like flavored waters and sparkling waters. There's a lot more varieties available now, and a lot of them have no sweeteners at all, but you can still get some really great fruity flavors. They give you a little bit of a fizz, which makes it kind of fun to drink. You can also make your own flavored waters, where you just put things like fruit and herbs in your water, and it really gives it a nice flavor. Homemade iced teas are a really good option as well because then you can control how much sugar goes into it. So you can use pretty much any kind of tea, whether it's herbal or black tea, green tea. You can flavor it with whatever you want and then you control how much sugar goes in. So these are really great refreshing options that help us manage how much sugar we're drinking. You know, you mentioned juices and I think a lot of parents say to their kids, well, have a juice. It's better for you. But that's not always the case, is it? No, no. Unfortunately, juice got what we call a health halo a while ago. So it got sort of this healthy food status. But when you look at it, what's in the nutrition there, it's really actually very similar to things like pop or or fruit punch mixes and that that we would normally classify as unhealthy. It's not to say that any of them can't be part of the diet. It's just that they're not particularly healthy. So if you like some juice, have it. But again, it can add a lot of extra sugar that we're not really thinking about. One thing that some parents uh, like to try and that kids can be pretty happy with too is trying to water down the juice a little bit so it's not quite as concentrated. Great stuff, Laura. Have a great summer. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thanks so much. Take care. Laura Creek Newman, a nutritionist at Winnipeg's Wellness Institute, joining us here this afternoon for a bit of discussion on, again, us being the slurpy capital of the world. The sugar champions of the world. Say it loud.
We're number one. My chest is tightening. The slurping champion of the world! Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.